I'm debating with myself these days. What's that? To watch all of Schitt's Creek? To binge on Schitt's Creek now that it's won every single Emmy? Are you a fan? Do you watch that show? You know what? I watched the first season and I kind of fell off, you know, after the first season. But I must get back to it. Apparently, people say it gets even better than the first season. Um, I I, I think it's very funny. And our colleague Sinead Crowley, the arts and media correspondent, tweeted earlier this week that uh, (laughs) she was delighted to the producers of the show because it allowed her to say shits (laughs) on Morning Ireland repeatedly. I heard that. (laughs) No, it's whether to do the... 2 a.m. Irish time presidential debate watch next week. Ah, yes, indeed. Not as bad for me. It's more in the land of the living for me, 9 p.m., but then I do have to stay up until 2, 3 a.m. doing Morning Ireland, and I may be using the word shits by the end of it. So exhausted I will be. But yes, excited, exciting times ahead. From RTE News, this is States of Mind. I am your president of law and order. You won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. All groups should practice self-monitoring and remain peaceful. This administration has shown it will tear our democracy down. May history be able to say that the end of this chapter of American darkness began here tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, the best is yet to come. Your U.S. election 2020 podcast. With Brian O'Donovan in Washington. And Jackie Fox in Dublin. Today. I went to a number of women's groups and said, can you help us find folks? And they brought us whole binders full of, uh, of women. You know, Joe Biden is going to be debating a kind of a unicorn, a sort of a bull in a china shop, someone who doesn't really follow the normal rules and protocols. It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country. Because you'd be in jail. Finally, a top political event during the 2020 US election season that kind of looks normal. Yeah, kind of normal. We will have debates. That's part of the, yeah, it's part of the big tradition that you have the big presidential debates. They are going ahead. There will be some people in the audience, not as many. They'll have to be social distancing. They'll have to be separated out. It won't have, I suppose, the same big pomp and ceremony as traditional presidential debates. But yes, they are going to be still going ahead. Since we don't have those massive campaign rallies and mass travelling to see how a candidate acts and performs, these debates are going to be more crucial than ever. I'd say they could be record-breaking viewing. Yeah, everybody's stuck at home with the lockdowns. TV viewership's gone up anyway. People will be tuning in. And as you say, because of the pandemic, there's been far fewer traditional rallies. So people haven't been able to get out and about to meet their candidates. Mm -hmm. So maybe this will be the way that they will engage. And they already draw lots of viewers. I think the last debate was it back in 2016 at at a height of 84 million viewers. And then, Jackie, the jury is kind of out on how big an impact they have on the way you vote. They kind of come late in the day, so a lot of people have already made up their mind. There's some research out there that, yes, it's a factor when people go to the polling booth, but it's not the biggest factor. A lot of people have already made up their minds. So we've got three presidential debates, each 90 minutes long, all with different moderators, and it will kick off, as we were talking about there, in the wee hours Irish time around 2am. That's around 9pm your time, Brian. Popcorn at the ready for the first one, which is hosted by a super interesting journalist on Tuesday, September 29th. 
That's right. So the first debate will be divided into six segments of approximately 15 minutes each. Each segment will open with a question and the candidate will get two minutes to give their response. So these, you mentioned the very famous journalist moderating this one. He's a guy by the name of Chris Wallace. He's a Fox News host. I know what you're going to say. Fox News. He'll be pro-Trump. The whole thing is going to be favoured on Trump's side. Absolutely not. Fox News is a, Chris Wallace on Fox News is a very interesting guy because he's not really very Fox News at all. He is a registered Democrat and he can be quite anti-Donald Trump and has given him some damn hard interviews over the years. Yeah, he only sparred with Donald Trump recently in an interview. In the Fox poll, they asked people, who is more competent? Who's got, whose mind is sounder? Biden beats you in that. Well, I tell you what, uh, let's take a test. Let's take a test right now. Let's go down. Joe and I will take a test. Let him take the same test that I took. Incidentally, I took the test, too, when I heard that you passed it. Yeah, how did it's you not do the it? Hard, well, it's not the hardest test. No, but the it last... It has a picture, and it says, let's not, and it's an elephant. No, no, no. You see, that's all misrepresentation. Well, that's what it was on the web. It's all misrepresentation. Because, yes, the first few questions are easy, but I'll bet you couldn't even answer the last five questions. I'll bet you couldn't. They get very hard, the last five well, questions. Well, one of them was count back from 100 by 7. And let me tell you. You couldn't answer. You couldn't answer. All right, what's the question? Many of the questions. I'd get you the test. I'd like to give it. But right. I guarantee you that Joe Biden could not answer those questions. Okay. okay. Yeah, that interview was quite damaging, I think, for Donald Trump. It got a huge amount of coverage. So, as you can imagine, Donald Trump, not a big fan of Chris Wallace. And, in fact, he has criticized him and dismissed him as a Mike Wallace wannabe in reference to Chris Wallace's father, who was one of the original members of the CBS 60 Minutes program. He also said that Chris Wallace was even worse than the presenters of NBC and CBS. So if there wasn't going to be enough drama and tension on debate night one, Donald Trump really, really dislikes the moderator and the host as well. So that should add an extra dimension of tension, no doubt. Exactly. That's only the first debate. So the second debate is in Miami, Florida, a town hall style debate on October 15th, which is a Thursday. It will be moderated by C-SPAN's Steve Scully. He served as the backup moderator for all the presidential debates back in 2016. Now he gets to step up. Then the third one, we have NBC's White House correspondent, Kristen Welker. She'll host the final presidential debate on October 22nd in Nashville. This is all after a lot of back and forth over who and where will host the debates because of the pandemic. Yeah, we had a couple of instances where they were going to be in certain parts of the country, in certain venues, and then those venues turned around and said, actually, we don't want them because of the pandemic. It's too risky. We don't want these big crowds descending on our towns. University of Michigan was supposed to host one of the debates and said, no, we don't want it. And then Notre Dame in Indiana also supposed to host one of them, but said they would not. So they had to look elsewhere. It sort of reminds one really of the, if you recall, the conventions having to be mm -hmm. downsized, having to be moved around, reminding us all the time that in the background of this big election is an even bigger pandemic. So looking at the candidates, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, we actually already know what both are like as debaters. Probably the freshest in our mind is Donald Trump from 2016. I didn't think I'd say this, but I'm going to say it. And I hate to say it. But if I win, I am going to instruct my attorney general to get a special prosecutor to look into your situation, because there has never been so many lies, so much deception, 
There has never been anything like it. It's just not true. And so please you, oh, go. Oh, you didn't to, delete them? Allow her to respond, please. Personal emails, not oh, official. 33,000? Not, yeah. well, we turned over 35,000. So oh, yeah. it was. What about the other 15,000? Uh, please allow her to respond. She didn't talk while you talked. Yes, that's true. I didn't. Because and you I didn't in the say. first debate, and uh, I'm going to try not to in this debate. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton clashing in their debates back in 2016. We mentioned at the start they attracted massive viewership on the TV, 84 million viewers tuning in for those debates. Different memories, I'm sure everybody has, of how those debates went. It was seen that in the first debate, Donald Trump was very weak. He was on the back foot. He was defensive. He clashed with Clinton all the time. It looked like she was very, very well prepared. He, not so much. Donald just criticized me for preparing for this debate. And yes, I did. And you know what else I prepared for? I prepared to be president. And I think that's a good thing. You look at these debates, I think with a lot of these, there's the zinger moment or the, 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 the key moment that sticks out, that becomes the meme on the internet or it becomes the clip that everybody watches on YouTube. And there are different moments throughout those debates between Trump and Hillary Clinton, where we spoke about him wandering around behind her, kind of almost stalking yeah. her. Do you remember that one where he was kind of standing in the background of the shot? And then there was another moment, I recall, where she said something about, what if you're in charge of the Justice Department? And lightning quick, Trump responded with, you'd be in jail. Mm. And it got this huge response in this big cheer. And of course, it was absolute nonsense. And it went back to this business of, oh, Hillary Clinton and her use of a private email server. She's going to go to jail over this. Lock her up were the chance. Now, as we know, James Comey, the then FBI director, so close to the election announcing that actually Hillary Clinton was still under investigation for her emails, was hugely damaging for her. But at the time, Donald Trump, this throwaway comment, you'd be in jail. I think that was very powerful and very effective. It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country. Yeah, because you'd be in jail. Secretary Clinton... <laughs> And you touched on it there, Brian, as well, because it is all about the body language to, you know, Trump standing behind Hillary Clinton. Um, remember Richard Nixon and JFK as well? Candidates, well, we thought had learned since then. I think Mr. Nixon is an effective leader of his party. I hope he would grant me the same. The question before us is, which point of view and which party do we want to lead the United States? Mr. Nixon, would you like to comment on that statement? I have no comment. Yes, JFK and Richard Nixon, he sort of looked sweaty and uncomfortable and awkward standing next to JFK, handsome, young, cool, calm, collected. In his memoir, Nixon himself said, I paid too much attention to what I was going to say and too little attention to how mm -hmm. I looked. Candidates then over the years, they had to try and improve their appearances. Uh, I think it was Michael Dukakis's staff, they were so worried that he would look so tiny in comparison to George Bush Sr. in their 1988 debate that they built him this little special concealed mound to stand on, which was hidden under the carpet behind his podium. But it's not only how you look, Brian. At the end of the day, it is what you say about those zingers you were talking about. Absolutely. And it can be just that little soundbite or that little catchphrase that catches the attention 
and everything else that was said in the debate and all the other wonderful back and forths that perhaps a candidate thought they had made a great point on all get forgotten about and we see these standout moments stand and stand the test of time, Jackie. Mm. There was that famous one, Ronald Reagan back in 1984 when he was asked at the age of 73 if age would be an issue and if it would be getting in the way of him being president and he gave a very famous line about not making age an issue in the campaign. Mr. President, I want to raise an issue that I think has been lurking out there for two or three weeks and cast it specifically in national security terms. You already are the oldest president in history, and some of your staff say you were tired after your most recent encounter with Mr. Mr. Uh, Mondale. Um, I recall yet that President Kennedy had to go for days on end with very little sleep during the Cuba Missile Crisis. Is there any doubt in your mind that you would be able to function in such circumstances? Not at all. Mr. Truitt and I, and I want you to know that also, I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. I think my favourite is binders full of women from Mitt Romney in 2012. Because I had the the chance to pull together a cabinet and uh, all the applicants seemed to be men. And I, and I went to my staff and I said, how come all the people for these jobs are, are all men? They said, well, these are the people that have the qualifications. And I said, well, gosh, can't we, can't we find some, some women that are also qualified? And, uh, and so we, we took a concerted effort to go out and find women who had backgrounds that could be qualified to become members of our cabinet. I went to a number of women's groups and said, can you help us find folks? And they brought us whole binders full of, uh, of women. I don't know what 2020's binders full of women moment will be, but there have been reports that Donald Trump hasn't been taking debating as serious as 2016, as he's confident Joe Biden will make a gaffe. Donald Trump is fully expecting Joe Biden to be a disaster on the debate stage. We've spoken about this repeatedly in the past, Jackie. Don- Joe Biden, not the best media performer, not the best speechmaker, not the best debater. We saw it during the Democratic primaries. He used to sort of lose his train of thought. He used to get lost in the point he was trying to make and just sort of abandon the point midway through because it wasn't really going anywhere. Not the quickest. Now, Donald Trump, as I say, has spent months telling us that he's some sort of bumbling mess who can barely string two words together. That means that the expectations are extremely low. So when Joe Biden delivered a really strong Democratic convention performance and gave a very strong acceptance speech, a lot of people kind of went, wow, that was really good, because expectations are so low. And I have no doubt in my mind that he's doing lots and lots of debate prep to get him up to scratch. Donald Trump, maybe less so. Who knows? Maybe there's a confidence there that because he's weak uh, on the debate stage, I'll be able to take him on. Now, there has been reportedly some informal prepping with Jared Kushner, his campaign manager, Bill Stepien, and other senior advisors. But when it's this case that maybe Donald Trump goes into this debate thinking, this guy's not a good debater, I'm going to take him on. And we saw that with the Trump campaign in general. They were pushing for more debates and earlier debates, assuming that this will be Donald Trump's strong point and Joe Biden's weak point. We'll just have to wait until next week to find out. But that overconfidence hasn't worked for other candidates. Former President Barack Obama, the last incumbent to square off on a debate stage, who took a similar overconfident approach to the first debate in his 2012 re-election campaign. He was widely seen as being annihilated by his opponent, Mitt Romney. And Donald Trump's lack of debate prep appeared to show recently too. 
Yeah, Donald Trump, they're big into these town halls here in the US where a TV network will get the candidate, sit them on the stage, and then the audience ask questions. Joe Biden had one on CNN last week. Donald Trump also had one on ABC News. Now, because of coronavirus, there's far fewer people in the audience, but there were some people in the audience, members of the public. He struggled at times. He didn't really get what people were asking the question. He gave sort of mixed answers. At one point, he was asked, what's his issue with mask wearing? Who has problems with mask wearing? He started talking about waiters touching their masks, touching their face, then touching their food. It wasn't his strongest performance and maybe a sign that he needs to up his game a little before debate night next week. With Mr. Joe Biden, though, he seems to be the class SWAT here doing debate prep since even before the conventions. Yeah, I like that. Joe Biden, the class SWAT when it comes to debates. You could argue he needs it, as we referenced earlier. Not the strongest debater. He was not the strongest debater on the stage during the Democratic primaries. So perhaps, yes, he is now hitting the prep hard to get there. Of course, he has had some practice. You could say those primary debates were good practice for him. High stakes one-on-one debates as well, of course, over the years in his role as vice president, Sarah Palin. Paul Ryan, big names that he had to take on on the debate stage. And I mentioned he had this CNN town hall event last week as well. I thought he performed quite well at that. It was an interesting setup, again, because of the coronavirus. They couldn't have a traditional packed audience asking these questions. It was a drive through. So it was like a drive through cinema, a drive up cinema drive-in movie theatres type scenario where uh, Joe Biden was on the stage, people drove in in their cars and they stood in front of their cars and asked their questions. So yes, he's had the preparation done, but as we said, many of these debates, you can be the best prepared in the world, but it can be a clanger, it can be a gaff, it can be a one-liner, a zinger, call it what you will. It can be a one little soundbite moment that changes everything and resonates with people and sticks in their mind. So let's go talk to a guy now who knows exactly what it's like to prep for a U.S. presidential debate. If I just just briefly, Jim, I know. In an environmentally friendly way. Well, can I have the last word on this? New question. Of course. New question. If I could say one We're way over the three and a half minutes. Go ahead. In a lockbox. One minute. Man's practicing fuzzy math again. Can I have a rebuttal here? Sure, but I just want to see if if, if he... So, Eli Atty... You worked with Bill Clinton and was part of Al Gore's debate prep team in the year 2000. Can you give us an insight into what on earth goes on when that debate prep starts? How intense is it? What's it like? Well, it's very intense. It's very methodical. Interestingly enough, when I worked for um, Al Gore, the person who ran his debate prep process. And I did a little bit of uh, help on Bill Clinton's debate prep process in 1996, though I was never in the room when Bill Clinton was in the room. Uh, I was still a kid, more or less. But but, um, when I was working for Al Gore, a guy named Ron Klain actually ran the debate prep process. He had been Gore's chief of staff, and at that point he had left and gone to the campaign when Gore was running for president, and he's the person running Joe Biden's debate prep now. And in starting in the year 2000, he's become something of an institution in democratic politics in the sense that he runs this process, and it is incredibly detailed and methodical, and they produce binders with basically, you know, this is at a staff level, every statement that uh, the opponent has made and the things he says in rallies and on the stump, and so that you, before you even reach the candidate who you're briefing and prepping, you've kind of winnowed down, this is what the likely lines of attack are going to be. Um, These are possible 
this is your positive message, the points you want to get across on any issue. Um, uh, these are some zingers and comebacks, all tailored within the structure of the debate. So months of, of sort of winnowing down sometimes decades of statements and points come into play. Then you get in a room with the candidate. Then you just start focusing on all the key points and issues, things you know that uh, your opponent is going to say. And then it comes down to just performance and ease at the podium and, and also just how to deal with that particular candidate's quirks um, and strengths and weaknesses. Um, all of which is to say, you know, Joe Biden is going to be debating a kind of a unicorn, a sort of a bull in a china shop, someone who doesn't really follow the normal rules and protocol. And anything they've said in the past, they might just contradict. So I think it's a very wily um, kind of beast here. Uh, and, and it's a very hard job, I think, figuring out how to challenge that. And before we go into this year's debates, how do you recreate the opponent during that debate prep? Is the voice mimicked? Is the behaviour? Did you play anyone? I never played anyone, no. I, when I was working for Al Gore, I was his main speechwriter. And so I would sit in the room and mostly um, somebody would turn to me, whether it was Gore or Ron Klain or, or a number of other, you know, the top sort of strategists and say, we need a better 60 seconds on Social Security. And I would sit down at the laptop and be kind of grinding away on it often while other prep was happening. And then I would produce this index card and shove it in someone's hands. I was kind of generating content. Um, back then... There always is someone who plays the opponent. And um, in answer to your question, it's really a question of how much theater they want to bring, whether they want to be comedic about it or try to imitate the person. The risk is that then you feel like you're in a Saturday Night Live sketch. You know, you're doing a kind of a comedy bit and not focusing on the content and areas of attack. But you need some approximation. Um, back when I worked for Al Gore, Paul Begala played George W. Bush. I know that four years ago, Philippe Reigns, who's a longtime spokesperson for Hillary Clinton, played Donald Trump. I've known Philippe uh, for, for a long time myself. And I would almost say you, it's, a, it's theater. You need, to, you need to have somebody step in and play that other part so that you can rehearse lines and moments. And the other thing, I'm sure, coming from the Democratic side of things, maybe you don't want to hear this, but you must acknowledge Joe Biden would not be the strongest debater. We saw it on the primaries. He's not the most forceful. He's not the most together debater. You have Donald Trump, who, as you say, rattles off the inaccuracy. And I'm reminded of the Hillary debates where he stalked her. He stood behind her. He threw out these zinger one-liners like, you'll be in jail if I'm in charge. How do you prepare against those kind of moments? And how do you prepare against someone like Donald Trump? Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, look, I think the risk, as you say, for Joe Biden is that he's not always the strongest performer. Um, you know, he has a bit of a stutter. He can sometimes lose his words. He he has a history going back many decades in politics of just going on and on and not being crisp and concise. He knows these things because, you know, if we know them, they're written about all the time and his team certainly knows them. I think it's tricky. They've got to coach him into being the best, crispest version of himself, but they can't change his personality. Um, and, you know, also Trump is a guy, as you say, who kind of throws the rule book out the window. And Biden is a guy who, over many decades, kind of wrote the rule book. He's a, he's a creature of Washington. He's a, he's a man who loves process. You could say he's one of these people who almost feels like he was born in a subcommittee hearing. 
you know, and, and, and so I think we have to hope um, that just what I would do if I were in the room is I would say, look, this is who you are. This is what you're like. We want to help you get tight answers and give you good lines and options and responses. But it's not going to work if you try to go up there and be someone other than who you are. You know, I often hear people, I've worked for a number of politicians, and I sometimes still dabble in it even now in my Hollywood career. And um, people are always saying to me, oh, I saw so-and-so, you know, I saw this politician, that politician. Why don't they just hire some coaches and become, you know, much more energetic? And it kind of it, it kind of doesn't work that way. It you know, you reach a certain age and, you know, Joe Biden has definitely reached a certain age and you, you just are who you are. So how do you harness that? What are the things you can say that feed into that? If I were Joe Biden, I'd be self-deprecating. I would be honest. I would say, look, I'm not going to be the sharpest speaker here. I'm not going to have the, the best insult lines. If you want that, well, then this is your guy, you know, Donald Trump. But if you want somebody who can actually lead us out of a pandemic, if you want somebody who really knows how the government works and wants to use it for things, that would be me. So I, I think the more he can be disarming, the more he can be himself, the more he can be real and in the moment, however that makes him, I think is a good thing. You mentioned your Hollywood career. We're very excited to talk about the other part of oh. your life. Writer and producer well, so on I, the then. West Wing. We're all we're all West Wing geeks on this podcast. What was it like, oh, I suppose, so working on the show and keeping with our debate theme? Were you involved in writing any of those sort of big debate scenes that we remember President Bartlett being involved in? Many economists have stated that the tax cut, which is the centerpiece of your economic agenda, could actually harm the economy. Is now really the time to cut taxes? You bet it is. We need to cut taxes for one reason. The American people know how to spend their money better than the federal government does. President, your rebuttal? What the hell? He's got it. That's the ten-word answer my staff's been looking for for two weeks. There it is. Ten-word answers can kill you in political campaigns. They're the tip of the sword. Here's my question. What are the next ten words of your answer? Your taxes are too high, so are mine. Give me the next ten words. How are we going to do it? Give me ten after that. I'll drop out of the race right now. I definitely was involved in those. I, I was not on the first two seasons of the show, so I, I as much as I, I spent five wonderful years there and it's the best job I ever had, really, you know, I, I came out of the real White House, really, working for Clinton and Gore, and then went right into Aaron Sorkin's White House. And it was a strange parallel reality for me because if you watch the early seasons of The West Wing, it changed later, but in those early seasons, the Oval Office is decorated exactly like Bill Clinton's Oval Office. Um, and the Roosevelt Room looks very similar, although those are about the only two rooms that look anything like the real White House on that old West Wing set. And it was very strange. I mean, it, it, take the building you work in and leave that building and then go to a soundstage where there are just lights instead of a roof and you're in those same rooms all day. And I just, I, I had to kind of blink a lot and wonder where I was. It was very disorienting. And then, of course, I'd been watching the show before I started working on it. And then you have the actors in full costume and makeup kind of coming toward you to chat in between takes. And to me, there's still these cartoon characters off my TV set. So I had many experiences there in the beginning, in particular, where I felt like my head was exploding. But I love that show still. I'm still very close to a lot of the actors and writers. Um, you know, there's a, there's a 
West Wing reunion coming up, and I've been helping oh, Aaron Sorkin a little bit on that. Yes, it, so the show is moving from um, Netflix in America, at least. I'm not sure about Ireland, but it's moving from Netflix to HBO Max, which is really okay. Warner Brothers' new streaming platform. And Warner Brothers made the show and owns the show, so they're taking it back from Netflix and putting it on their own new platform. So partly to promote that and partly because we have this election and they're, they're going to make it a, sort of a benefit for voting rights and for Michelle Obama's voting rights organization when we all vote. There's going to be, uh, I don't even know the length of it yet, but a bit of a special where the West Wing cast is getting back together and reading an old uh, script of the West Wing and also some new material. And, and uh, I've been remotely involved, which has been very fun. I haven't been in the room with any of those guys in a while. But, uh, but it, it, to answer your question, it was a thrilling place to be because it was a fun show. I just liked working on it. I thought it was good material and enjoyable. But it was also a way to take everything I did in politics. And many of my own stories ended up in the show in various forms in the seasons I was there. But I always got to change the ending and make it a happy ending. <laughs> I was in <laughs> politics in a tumultuous time. And it didn't always end with a flag billowing in the wind and the president summoning us to a higher purpose. Um, so we got to tell some of my stories and tack that ending on on the show and it was really delightful well the drama today would equal any tv show especially the west wing and we could talk to you about that all day but eli what is it like watching from the sidelines when the debate is actually happening you know when i was working in real politics and the couple times i've helped a little bit on candidates debate prep in the years since I still feel like I'm on the sidelines, and, and I and I did when I worked for Al Gore. And the reason is, it's it's um, actually Brad Whitford, one of the actors from The West Wing, who's a very close friend of mine. Uh, still, he always said to me that when he was about to do live theater, when he was mostly a stage actor, he still does theater now and then. But when he when that's what he really did when he was living in New York before The West Wing. He said the scariest thing would be waiting in the wings to go out on stage to start your play and knowing that in 90 minutes you'd still be on that stage. But, in, but the way he put it is he couldn't, for the life of him, tell you what he had to say in 90 minutes. You know, he was just going to go out there and trust that he knew the thing and that the flow of it would happen and that he would get through the evening, which, of course, he always did, uh, acclaimed stage actor. But the thing about debates is that you can prep the hell out of your candidate. You can give them all the zingers and all the kind of performance uh, uh, tips and, and tricks. And then they get out there and it's just them alone. And, and, and it's like a boxing match. You know, you get thrown off guard. You, you, you read that something's happening in the room differently than you expected. And sometimes you throw away the whole game plan. So I generally, you know, have felt watching those on TV or, you know, frankly, when I worked for Al Gore, all the top, you know, advisors and, and strategists would huddle in a little green room and watch it on a small TV. <laughs> we were never in the audience because that's how the country sees it. And I always felt scared and helpless and like my heart was in my mouth. And I, I think I must have debate PTSD <laughs> because I feel that way every debate I ever see now. Because um, during you know, Al Gore's debate, wasn't it, in 2000, he was criticised for the amount of sighing he did. It kind of broke a rule that never show disdain for the opposition. What did you guys feel like when he kept doing that? Texas, that's what a governor gets to do. There's differences. Well, the interesting thing is I think there are a lot of things that happen in politics that the day after they happen, it becomes politics 101 that you shouldn't do that. 
you know, uh, back in the mid 80s, Walter Mondale very aggressively pledged that he was going to raise taxes in his convention speech in a very clever turn of phrase. And, you know, he lost in a huge route for many reasons. And that's something no one has done since. I think Lindsey Graham saying you definitely can't have a Supreme Court nominee yeah, right before an election. <laughs> use this against Lindsey me Graham and we all will. Said, yeah, and, 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 and we are, by the way. But in Al Gore's case, the size, look, he was a, a, a smart, accomplished, you know, not just an expert in Congress before he was vice president on climate change, but also on arms control and did so many gutsy things on policy as a senator and as vice president. And I think rightfully in his mind, he felt, you know, I'm here on a debate stage with a guy who who actually just showed confusion about whether or not Social Security was a government program. And I think there was a little bit of I think it was, uh, uh, you know, portrayed pretty accurately on, on Saturday Night Live in this country in some ways. But he was frustrated and we were frustrated. And, you know, he might have sighed occasionally in debate prep. If he did, we didn't notice it. Uh, it, it became a big thing after that night. You know, when Gore um, got through that first debate, I mean, definitely there were moments when he showed a little more frustration than he should have. But the instant polls of voters showed that overwhelmingly people thought he won the debate over George W. Bush. But the spin of the campaigns and the way it played out in the press over the subsequent days, Gore's sort of uh, mannerisms overtook the substance of the debate. Uh, and, you know, it was frustrating. It was frustrating. But, you know, I think we saw that night as a big win as it was happening. And, and maybe it shows how out of touch we are or maybe it shows how these events have a way of kind of defining themselves over time. You mentioned the polling done immediately after the debates, who won, who lost. Does it matter when you look on, on election day? How many? I mean, is there a research done on this? What's the general view out there? Does it change someone's mind? Does it weigh on their mind when they physically go to the ballot, to the polling station on election day? I think it's we get so much information now and so much exposure to candidates, much more so than, you know, before social media, say, where you know, it's it's not even a 24-hour news cycle. It feels like there's 100 hours in each day of just information coming at us and direct statements by the candidates and 900 cable channels, you know, streaming, you know, airing their rallies and, you know, just the content you can stream. So I think the debates are probably less important than they were, but the, the Kennedy-Nixon debates, really, I think a lot of people believe, won it for John Kennedy, played a huge role in him winning that election. And I think people were reluctant to hold debates again for that reason for a long time. You know, the reason we have a presidential debate commission is to ensure, among other things, that they don't happen too soon before an election. When Jimmy Carter debated Ronald Reagan, it was like a week before the election. And, you know, Reagan did much better than Carter in a lot of people's minds. And that was it. Carter had no time to recover. Now it's happening like a month out. So and that's the way it's always happened, you know, for the last couple of decades. And so um, you you just have time for it to kind of it's like a convention. There might be a bump, there might be a bounce, but it just falls into the narrative. So unless something crazy happens on that stage, and it might, I think it's it's not going to change the fundamental shape of the race, which right now is that Joe Biden has been ahead steadily for months, but that because of the sort of uh, kinks of our electoral system in this country, 
Trump still has a chance. I think a, a, not a huge chance, but he still has a chance to win the Electoral College. Great. Eli, thank you so much for joining us on States of Mind. We really appreciate it's, it. It's a great pleasure. Anytime. Thanks, Eli. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye now. Take bye. care. Oh, Brian, that really makes me want to watch The West Wing again. Me too. I want to rewatch that. It's years since I've seen it. And of course, all my time over here, I've wanted to rewatch that. So now we have to rewatch The West Wing. You uh, need to catch up on Shit's Creek. How many seasons are they again? Oh, my I'm God. Like Lots. Six, seven, eight. It was quite. And a few they're all like oh, a eight. Was, was it every year of his two year presidency? Was that the whole concept? No. Maybe uh, I'm wrong with that. My Googling methods are not working today. But you have the West Wing. You need to catch up on Shit's Creek, which I think is six seasons. And then you're going to have the debates next week. Lots of TV watching ahead for you, Jackie Fox, which is no harm, given that we're all in lockdown still <laughs> in some sort take, of semi mode. I need to take some annual leave, I think. <laughs> Just to catch up on your TV. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Um, chat to you next week then, Brian. Chat to you next week.